Uh, let's open up here to Revelation chapter 14. Chapter 14. We've got three chapters we're getting into this morning. I looked at two chapters last week that gave us a description of the dragon, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the land. Sort of this counterfeit alternative trinity of evil, you know, representing Satan and the idolatrous worldly system and its leaders, as well as the false prophet leading false religion. We found that all these forces are working together to compete with God for the devotion and worship of the people of the world. Now those who chose not to go along with this worldly system and spiritual evil are those whose names are written in the book of life. Those who have received the seal of God and not the mark of the beast. That is us Christians. We were said to be those who keep God's commands and are faithful regarding our testimony of Jesus. As a consequence of their faithfulness and our faithfulness, in our lesson last week we learned in the time of the beast there is going to be oppression Tremendous persecution economically, spiritually, physically against God's faithful. Some even being exiled and killed for their failure to go along with the corrupt systems of this world. Now, as I presented last week, all of this was undoubtedly interpreted to be for the early believers that received this message of revelation. It was undoubtedly interpreted to be a reference, all of this, to Satan empowering the Roman Empire. Those were the experiences of the early church. But it also speaks to the power and influence of Satan to establish other corrupt, idolatrous, totalitarian governments in the world today and social structures that oppose God's people. It's like you see in the Bible, there are demons and they can inhabit people and they can move and inhabit another person. So Satan, through all the ages of the church since the ascension of Jesus, is able to empower idolatrous and corrupt worldly empires that stand against God. So when someone comes to me and says, oh, Revelation speaks to the Roman Empire, and that's what this is talking about, and then somebody else comes to me and says, well, no, it's actually referring to evil empires in the future that Satan is going to empower. You know, is it this or is it that? Is it the past or is it the future? And I simply just respond, yes. So, you know, we're, we're going to see, regardless of where you land in your understanding, that these forces of Satan, his demons, and this idolatrous world system, they're all coming to a continual and decisive end, just as already been established and predicted throughout this book. I know it can feel in this study like we're trying to kill a cockroach by this point. I mean, we, I already preached through... You know, the seven seals, I preached through this, the seven trumpet blasts, the two witnesses. Now we're getting into the seven bowls of his wrath. You know, you're just like, when is this thing going to die? When is it all going to just end? And, and I can say, look, the journey for us has been constructive because every time we go through these different seven judgments, we're seeing different dimensions enlivened regarding Christ's victory. And this week, is going to be no exception to that rule as we look at the wine press of God's wrath and again those seven bowls of his wrath as well. Three chapters. All right, we did four two weeks ago, two last week, three. We're right in the middle this week. It's going to be quite a bit. We got quite a bit the following week too, and then we're going to slow down and enjoy the victory a little bit before we end this series. It's going to be a good time. All right, chapter 14, verse 1. 
John says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. I saw in heaven another great sign and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law. And it was open. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, they were dressed in clean, shining linen, and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. 
And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The faith angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains closed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. I say that's good for our reading this morning. I think we can pause right there. You know, as we begin, we see John immediately contrast the tone of Revelation 13 from our study last week, which depicted the total influence and power of the dragon and the beast. It said in Revelation 13 that authority was given the beast to conquer God's people. So that was the tone that we were left with in chapter 13. The beast and those who bear his mark oppressing God's people with such power and influence that they had conquered God's people. So we have a change of tone. We want to immediately contrast that. God wants to contrast that with Revelation 14, the image of God's total people surrounding Jesus. There's 144,000 I defined earlier in this series. You know, the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people of old, the 12 apostles multiplied together times a thousand. You get 144,000. This is the complete picture of God's people together standing at Mount Zion surrounding Jesus. This is the location of the heavenly city. And they are singing a new song of victory 
and redemption. And I'm assuming we all get upgraded voices to go along with all this newness at this point. I'm really hoping for my sake. So here's the contrast, though. Revelation 13, where we just left off, we have the earthly picture, God's people being conquered by evil. Revelation 14, we immediately have the heavenly and the ultimate picture. That is God's people surrounding Jesus in the heavenly city in victory. And they are described in a way to clarify what God expects from us who one day desire to be joined to him on Mount Zion. First of all, they were called virgins. And for some of you, I lose you right here, right? But let me just say, this is not literal. Because if some higher spiritual status was given to those who are celibate than individuals like the Apostle Peter and several other apostles, a la 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, they would not be included in this higher spiritual status. No, here as in many other places in Revelation, this spiritual virginity is just that. It refers to believers who are giving their devotion and worship to God and not to idols. Number two, they are described as following the Lamb wherever He would go, meaning they kept Jesus' commands, meaning they lived and did what Jesus did. Recall, that was Jesus' call to His disciples initially in the Gospels. He said, follow me. Now, these are those who follow the shepherd wherever he goes in his example. Number three, they are said to be those who did not have a lie in their mouth, i.e., they did not make these false confessions regarding the divinity of Caesar, the leader of Rome, or false confessions regarding the divinity of any other future worldly leader or giving worship to any worldly system or nation. For they're said to be blameless, despite the unjust oppression and blame heaped upon them, described in Revelation 13, they didn't sink to those lows. They lived above it. Sort of how I want to be as a parent, right? When my kids act five, I want to act like I'm 35, not like I'm five. You know, I want to be blameless in my parenting, not sucked down into it. That's the same reality of these believers gathered to Jesus. They've had all this oppression and violence and hatred put upon them but they aren't going to employ the tactics of the world or the methods of the beast in response. They are blameless, and they are supposed to be, because that's what God has mandated. They've been purchased by God for that purpose, to be set apart and distinct. Just as we've been purchased, it says in the Scriptures, by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross to be considered as the first fruits from among humankind. That was the statement given to them. That's the statement given to us. This is taken from the Old Testament concept of the tithe. When you'd have the crop come in, you'd give the first fruits. The first bit of it, the first 10%, given over to God. It was devoted to God. It was considered holy, set apart. Then you could use everything else for common purposes. So the word spoken over God's people is, we are the first fruits of mankind. We are the portion of the world that is devoted and holy and distinct from the rest. And we are also the first fruits of the new creation that is here to come in its fullness. Now, again, I just want to pause and state that in our reading and through this whole study, there's been lots of things that are confusing in this study. There have been lots of details that you can get lost in. When I was reading three chapters this morning, you might have checked in, checked out, checked in, checked out, thought about the burrito, thought about what I was saying. Like, you can get lost, right? 
But I just want to say that there are things that are very clear and overt in this book. And they're clear and overt for a reason. It's sort of similar to my experience this week at Disneyland. I went on Rise of the Resistance for the first time. It's like the crowning jewel of Star Wars land. It's supposed to be one of the most, you know, defining new rides. And uh, it's based on the worst of the three Star Wars movies and in all the three different trilogies, uh, the latest ones. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong and we can debate it in the foyer. You know, it's just like pre-trib, post-trib. You want to talk Revelation? I'm down for it, but... I actually had somebody take me up on this. They said, Jar Jar Binks, come on. And I said, still better, still better. I watched those three movies ruined by J.J. Abrams, and I, I really feel strongly about this. And I still can't tell you on the other side who's Kylo Ren, who's Rey, who's what, who's this, who's that. I watched all three. I went to the theater and saw these. I don't have a clue what's what. So I don't understand the narrative of this ride at all. It's just, you know, pyrotechnic confetti all around me the whole time. It's chaos. I'm on a ship. I'm off a ship. I'm in the jail. I'm out of the jail. There's a lightsaber coming through the roof. There's an explosion. And then I arrive safely at my, you know, victorious destination. I get that part. I don't get all the details, but I got that part. The point is you may not get everything here in the book of Revelation, but we can all agree who stands on Mount Zion gathered around Jesus. It is those who in all purity were devoted to him. And they emulated and followed what he did. And they didn't speak false teachings. They didn't speak false religion. They didn't give their worship to a human being or a nation. They kept it reserved for God. They didn't go low when the world went low. They stayed blameless above it all because they were purchased and set apart as holy. We can all agree on that, and we can all seek to be those who will join Jesus one day on that mountain. Now, following that clear picture of coming glory, there are then three angels who announce three distinct messages in anticipation of the final judgment. The first is said to declare the gospel. That is the good news. But it isn't formulated as such. It sounds more like a message of judgment. It's sort of like the news part of the good news. It's like Peter said in his preaching in Acts chapter 2, the first time the gospel is preached, he's appealing to the group. He's saying, guys, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And the good news is that God has made a way for people to be saved from the corrupt generation through Jesus' offering of himself on the cross. That's the good news. But the news part of it is that there's a corrupt generation that's going to be corrected. The news part of it is not everyone is going to receive the means of salvation. They're not going to run for the exit even though the building is presently burning. The second angel continues this theme of judgment with a message directed at the beast over Babylon, the great city, the city that came to represent all worldly kingdoms of idolatry that oppose God's people. Babylon is going to be a word that's used a lot now through the rest of Revelation. It's like the uh, kingdom version of a Karen, right? Babylon is the Karen of nations. Now, sorry to bring that up again, Karen, but it, it's just a helpful analogy for people to connect like it's not literally Babylon, it's nations that appear like Babylon that have these characteristics. They're idolatrous, 
and they set themselves up against God's people. And the best part of this judgment spoken against Babylon, this city empowered by the dragon, this city that represents the beast of idolatry opposing God's people, is the fact that its judgment is spoken of in the past tense. That's how sure the judgment is. The angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon, even while it still stands. Its worldly system setting itself up in competition with God is so going to be destroyed, we can speak of it in the past tense. It's like if I was to say to you, destitute, destitute is Andrew in Orange County retirement. Like, I am, I am fully aware that is my fate. It is so sure I can speak of it in the past tense. Some of you know what I'm feeling here in Orange County. You're in the same boat as me. The third angel then arrives to declare further judgment, wherein all who drank of the spiritual adulteries of this so-called new Babylon and were coerced to worship it and serve in its system of compromise for economic and spiritual gain. Those who drank of that system's adulteries now are going to be given the cup of God's wrath, the wine of God's wrath, and the sulfur and fire and smoke and torment that the angel speaks of lasting forever and ever for those who've been complicit with the beast and the dragon. It contrasts with the continual rest God's people are said to receive forever and ever at the consummation of God's kingdom. Now, in light of these announcements of these three angels of this impending judgment, verse 12 instructs us, the reader, to be patient, to express endurance as God's people, because we have yet to see all this take place. You know, it's so sure that it's going to happen, we could talk about it in the past tense, but when we're in the midst of it and God's people are being conquered... There could be that element of fear. So we've got to have patient endurance before the arrival of these realities, just as Jesus called for that same endurance in all his letters to the churches at the outset of this book. Now, I'm going to state the, the judgment to come for humankind on the other side of these angels' announcements, it's a harrowing image that we are given. The harvest by a sharp sickle in the hand of Jesus. And the image is given twice for emphasis. Here in chapter 14, verse 14, Jesus takes a sickle to the earth, sweeping at the harvest. Then again, the grapes are said to be ripe. That is, the souls of those opposed to God are prepared for judgment. And an angel swings yet again and takes those grapes into the winepress of God's wrath. The grapes are filled up in there. The wine press is pressed. Blood flows over the top of the wine press. It rises to the level of a horse's bridle. All of you are horseback riders. You know exactly what I'm speaking of. That's how we get around today. No, it's the, it's the reins in the mouth of a horse. We're talking five, six feet high, and it stretches for 1,600 stadia, which you all measure. You're running in, in stadia. It, it measures in your footnotes, you'll see 180 miles, almost 200 miles. So five feet high, 200 miles long is the amount of blood that is pictured here. It's enough to stretch across basically the holy land, the land of Palestine. Now the image here conveys that the murder and oppression and death of the beast is responded to as an eye for an eye, meaning justly. And the judgment is expansive. Now, for some of you, you don't respond well to images like this. You don't respond well to what could be perceived as like threats in the Bible. 
You rebel at the notion that there's anything to be gained from a passage and an image like this. But what if I told you Jesus wasn't employing a tactic, a fear-based tactic? What if I told you he wasn't threatening anybody? He was just speaking fact. I think this image conveys the second half of a verse that I cited last week. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But do be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The power of the beast, described very clearly in Revelation chapter 13, is the power to conquer God's people. It's the power to kill the body. But don't be afraid of what you saw in Revelation chapter 13. That is nothing. The true power is depicted in Revelation chapter 14. And that is the power to not only kill the body, but to be, as the Creator, the One, God Himself, to be the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. He's the one to revere, not the beast. The reverence will be deepened as we turn to the last series of plagues that John saw, and by way of introduction to them in chapter 15, we see the saints, the 144,000, the people of God, standing beside the sea. Now again and again, Revelation cues us to many Old Testament passages. That's what can be so confusing about it is we're not all super literate in the Old Testament. But, but if you know just a couple very important events in the Old Testament, you can really call to mind what is being conveyed. There are two most important events that are constantly being cited in this book. One is the Exodus of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. That is queued up again and again in the imagery of Revelation. The other is the Israelite exile in Babylon when they were oppressed, when they were kept back in that position of slavery. We are supposed to look at this as the church in this age as recalling that Israelite journey through the Exodus. That is a prophetic roadmap for us of how we're to live moving through this wilderness state, this spiritual state in this world today, as we're headed toward the promised land, which is heaven, which is the kingdom of God. Currently, we're like the Israelites were in Babylon. We're in a kingdom of exile. This is not our home, but we're moving through this wilderness on our way to the ultimate picture of the kingdom of God. So John sees, in the end, God has brought his people through the metaphorical Red Sea. That's why they're standing on the edge of the sea. That was a place of victory where they moved through by God's provision, God's people did, and they saw Egypt's armies being crushed. And they're singing Moses' song. It's a song of victory, right? We're escaping from that oppression. And it's not really Moses' song. It's really an amalgamation of all kinds of victorious declarations from Israel's history. Their victory and God's power are the introduction to this final, even more explicit series of plagues envisioned in the seven bowls of judgment. Now, what are the seven bowls of judgment? They, like the seven trumpets, are modeled very closely on many of the plagues that God gave to Egypt and against Pharaoh. They overlap with some of the trumpet judgments in their impact, but they seem to be deeper, more explicit, more intense than what we even read in the trumpet judgments. And stepping back for a second, why in the world is there so much repetition in the book of Revelation? You know, for us as modern readers, we see repetition and we see redundant. 
We see repetition and we go, that's boring, you're losing me, right? But to the ancient reader, they would look at it as emphasis. Why is the earth harvested twice in Revelation 14? There's an emphasis that's being conveyed. And so there's an emphasis in these series of judgments. I sort of envision like from an emotional perspective, I've been preaching through these series of judgments from the seals to the trumpets, the two witnesses, the bulls. The way I emotionally picture the movement that we've been going on, it's sort of like Revelation in this cosmic battle section is like this surreal nightmare carousel ride. And we're going around and around, and every time we're seeing the same things. But every time the picture gets a little clearer, it gets a little darker, it gets a little bit more terrifying until the whole picture inverts and we finally come into the light. As we step aboard this last leg of the ride, we see the first angel's bowl put sores on the people who have the mark of the beast. Though the mark means temporary prosperity, being complicit with the evil worldly system, it comes along with an affliction, which is the torment of these people's sores. Second angel's bowl turns the sea to a dark and bloody color, like the previous plagues did. But this time, everything dies. In the past plagues, it was just a third of the creatures in the sea. Now this time, everything dies. What this conveys is God's ability, his capacity to afflict the economic system, because often the sea and the creatures and maritime trade is linked to the sea in this book of Revelation. So he can afflict that, and he can afflict nature in ways that are not just partial, but complete and total. Then the third angel turns the freshwater sources to blood. It's said to be in response to the blood of God's people being shed. This is again recalling the just judgments of these plagues. Right? There's an affirmation that says, because this has occurred, this is the right response. That they would drink the blood of those they have shed. <coughs> Excuse me. The fourth angel pours a bowl on the sun. And it is said to then scorch the ungodly. The believers were the ones who were oppressed and they were marginalized in the economic system. That's what is made clear in the letters to the churches by Jesus. But we already read a verse in Revelation 7 that spoke about a time that's coming when never again will God's people hunger. Never again are they going to thirst. The sun is not going to beat down on them nor any scorching heat. The opposite is going to be true for their oppressors. The heat that they placed upon God's people is now going to be placed upon them in that fourth bowl. The fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and darkness fell over the kingdom, the effect of which appears to be primarily psychological as the people are biting their tongues, you know, in torment, and they are cursing God. Now I want to note something that's kind of ironic about the ignorant system of unbelief that is revealed in the fourth and the fifth bowl and the response of people to the judgments. Because in both the fourth and the fifth bowl, the people turn as a result in that judgment and they curse God and they get angry with him. So this is the irony of the world system. The world system worships created things rather than the creator and gets all this blessing and goodness in the world but doesn't give any credit to God for the good. But the second something bad happens, they are eager to curse the God that they denied even existed. They give God no credit for the good. But the second something bad happens, they are eager to open their mouth and curse God for the bad. 
And now they're acknowledging through their cursing of God that He is real, that He exists. But they don't affirm and worship the one who is above all created things. It's the definition of a hardened heart, one that is set on its own destruction, clinging to its own empty pride. It's a heart that says, I know I'm wrong, but I won't dare say I'm wrong, even if it means my own end. And the end is coming. The sixth bowl depicts the Euphrates being dried up, just as Cyrus, the king of Persia, diverted its waters at the invasion of the historical kingdom of Babylon. Babylon, it was a, it was a fortress city. It had like around it the Euphrates like a moat. So there was no way to get past its high walls to get past the water. So the king of Persia was brilliant. He said, I'm actually going to just dig out some land. We're going to divert the waters and we're just going to cross right over those waters. We're going to cross over the Euphrates. And so Persia defeated Babylon and that opened up the possibility for the Jews to be released back to their homeland. Now this new Babylon, the worldly system established by the dragon and the beast, it's going to be invaded in the same way by kingdoms beyond its borders. And this will come to pass partly through the God-ordained activities of the dragon, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the land who is here called the false prophet. They're going to spew out these demon frogs that are going to be croaking and speaking all these lies in the ears of the kings of the world to gather them for a final battle against God's people. And the kings gather at Har Megiddo, or as we call it, Armageddon. All right, that's... Har Megiddo in the original language. It means the Mount of Megiddo. Now, interestingly, there is no mountain in Megiddo. It's the plains of Megiddo. So there's something interesting going on here in the wordplay. Megiddo itself was an area where a lot of battles have been fought because it's plains, because this is the border of the southern and northern kingdom of Israel. And, and it's a place where historically lots of battles have been fought. And God's people... God's holy people had been conquered several times in that very place by oppressive regimes. Now, nearby, the closest mountain to it is Mount Carmel. And that mountain is the place where Elijah the prophet had a showdown with the prophets of Baal. They both called down fire, right? I talked about this, I believe, last week. The prophets of Baal failed. Elijah called down fire. It succeeded because God is the one true God. He calls down fire on the prophets of Baal and defeats them. So you put this together this image of Megiddo and the mountain of Carmel. This is a place where God's people have formerly been defeated and oppressed. It is now going to be the place of their vindication when God destroys all the idolatrous empires that stand against him. And then the final bowl is poured out into the air. And presumably it's the voice of Jesus that declares it is finished. It is done just as he did at the cross. The same lightning and thunder and earthquake as at the seventh seal and at the seventh trumpet blast appears again, indicating the final judgment. The great city collapses, the nations fall, the cup of God's wrath is given the great Babylon to drink, the islands disappear, along with the mountains running away, and finally huge hailstones weighing 100 pounds fall upon the people as they curse God with their final breaths. There's a lot here in three chapters and these plagues, these bowls, this wine press. What are we to walk away from this study with? And this is an important time in each message to sort of clarify, like, what's for us? There's so much of this that's depicting the work of the dragon, the work of Satan, the work of God, but what's, 
for us. And what's amazing is amidst all the details that I've just described for you, I think the mandate on us is very clear. I think the job for us found in these three chapters is very clear. It's this. We're to simply follow the Lamb. The mandate on us is to simply follow the Lamb. It records here a lot of what Satan does. It records the definite response of God, but it also shows what God's faithful are going to do in the meantime. I want to invite you. I want to encourage you. Don't get lost. Just follow the Lamb. Don't get lost in all this stuff. Just follow the Lamb. Keep God's commands. He said that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He said, my disciples are going to obey everything I have commanded them. Not because they're going to try and be super spiritual. Not because they're going to try and earn God's love. All that's afforded us through the cross. But because we love God in response to His love. Because His words are spirit and they are life. This life of following Jesus is you know, coined as the narrow road in the Gospels in Jesus' teaching. It's not narrow because it's obscure. It's narrow because it's clear and distinct from the rest of the world. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. There's a lot of people just walking all over the place in this life. They're just making it up as they go along. And God has given us this clear path through all of it, which is the path of life. It means I don't give my allegiance. You don't give your allegiance in worship to any worldly leader or nation. It means you don't promote spiritual lies or become stained by employing the tactics of the world. I was purchased. You were purchased by the blood of the Lamb. You are now holy and you're set apart. You now walk where He walked. You now say what He says. You now do what He did in every age, in every season, in every time period in history from now to the end. That's our mandate. Simply follow the Lamb. So my question to you is, are you living like Jesus in the world? Are you doing what he did? Are you following him today? Number two, I want to leave you with this. This is an impression I get from these chapters. God's judgments are just. When God takes the sickle and fills the wine press with souls, when he turns the water to blood because of the blood of his saints that was spilled, he acts justly. Remember, the book of Revelation is queuing up all that Old Testament prophecy and these events. The book of Ezekiel is one book that was called forth many times in this book. In that book, God states very clearly how he feels about the wicked. He says in chapter 18, verse 23, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Is this fun? Do I enjoy this? Are we all supposed to say, oh, this is just, you know, fantastic, wonderful, that these people aren't repenting and all this kind of stuff? He says, no. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? He says, they can live. If, if they change, they will live. And each bowl is another chance that people would change. But it's a deep pride. It's an evil course that exists in humanity that will doggedly pursue destruction, cashing in on comforts and giving no credit to God. And the second the bad things come and those comforts cease, turning instead to curse him, heeding not the many warnings and signs while ripening for wrath and sin, like grapes on a false vine. God invented justice and mercy. He invented righteousness. He invented grace. God delivers on all these things with integrity, and his messaging is always meant to produce change, to soften the hardened heart while there's still time for it to be softened. Now, that's you. If you're that hardened heart, heed 
heed the warning of Jesus while there is yet time. Third, the final impression that I get from this study, and I've been getting increasingly as we go through this entire study of the book of Revelation, living victoriously means living like victory is assured. Last week I said cling to your spiritual victory. Look, chapter 13, the authority of the dragon and the beast, the other beast in this world to conquer God's people. We might go through some really bad stuff. So cling to your spiritual victory. So what does that mean to cling to our spiritual victory? It means living like our victory is assured because it is. You know, Christians have this habit of taking every news headline and development that happens in the world as a means to speculate about the terror to play out and how it conforms to the message of Revelation. Revelation minces no words. It is very clear about how terrible and terrifying some of the things are that have happened to Christians over the past 2,000 years and may yet again happen in the future. But it never uses that as a means of sensationalizing or stirring up anxiety among God's people. Instead of fearfully speculating forward, God gave us revelation so that we would know our victory in the end and pull it forward into today. That's the purpose of revelation. It's not to help us speculate about the terrors to come in the future. It's to help us know the end of victory and bring it into today. To see the believers gathered at Zion as your end. To see that the time when we're standing by the sea singing the song of Moses, like that is the destination that we are headed for. We are going to hear Jesus say, it is finished. Yet again, he said it on the cross regarding our sin being taken away, heaven being opened to us, but he's going to say it again regarding the evil of the world. So anytime we see conspiracy, we see threat, we see something going on in the news, it's finished. It's as good as finished. It will be done. It will be done away with. We can even talk about it past tense. You know, just like the angel did, fallen, fallen is the great city of Babylon. Fallen is the world system that opposes God and his people. It's so certain. Let's talk in the past tense. Fallen before it even falls. You can think, oh, which direction is it going to fall? Is it this way? Is it that? I don't care. I don't care. Fallen. Fallen. No lost sleep here. Let me give all my energy to just following the Lamb wherever he goes today in preparation for his return tomorrow. That's victory. Giving all my energy to following the Lamb wherever he leads today in preparation for his return tomorrow. That's it. That's where all my energy goes. That is victory. That's the victory that we can all share together if we'll receive it. Let's pray together. Would you join with me in a posture of prayer as we consider the message here given to us in these three chapters? And Lord, we want to come before you humbly and just thank you. Thank you amidst metaphors and imagery and all sorts of things that might catch our attention and lead us astray, you made the mandate on us so clear that our role, our purpose in every season, in every age is to follow you wherever you lead. That's 
our mandate. It doesn't change. It's unchanging. We're following the Lamb that was slain. No matter what is leveled against us in the world, we are bound by the truth of the gospel, the good news, extending your grace, living lives of love and self-sacrifice, not departing from your path, remaining blameless, just like the world would wear the name of the beast on its forehead or on its hand, we are marked with the name of Jesus. And we are to remain faithful in our testimony regarding you. God, everything else you're going to handle. Your, just, your, your judgments are just. You, you, you know how to handle evil. You know how to handle the corruption of this world. And you will handle it decisively so. Lord, in the meantime, we pray for the repentance of those maybe who are even here gathered this morning, who are living in this place where their hearts are hardened to your truth. They're not living like you in the world. They've rejected you. Lord, would you soften their hearts with this message, with this warning? Would they heed your warning so that they might join with all your people living in the victory that is to come, the victory that is assured one day as we're going to sing this morning, we'll be singing on Mount Zion. We'll be singing on the other side of that metaphorical Red Sea. We will be in your kingdom. Evil will be finished and done away with. And already we can sing songs where we declare that fallen, fallen is the system of this world that's idolatrous and stands against you and your people for victory is so assured in you. Lord, let us lift up that victory and live from that victory so that all our energy can be focused simply on following you every day, doing what you would do, saying what you would say in this world until you come. I pray this in Jesus' name over my brothers and sisters. Amen.